Hello, welcome to Converging Dialogues. This is Xavier Bonilla. On this episode, I am very excited to bring the conversation I had with Randolph Nessie. Uh, Randy is a research professor of life sciences and founding director of the Center for Evolution and Medicine at Arizona State University. He's a professor emeritus, departments of psychiatry and psychology, and institute for social research at the University of Michigan, and the founding president uh, for the International Society for Evolution, Medicine, and Public Health. He is author of many, many papers um, and many books, uh, and he is the author of uh, the, the book that we talk about in this conversation, Good Reasons for Bad Feelings, um, Insights from the Frontier of Evolutionary Psychiatry. So evolutionary psychiatry is the focus of the conversation here. Um, we talk about evolutionary psychiatry, what it is, we define it, why it's been overlooked. We talk about some of the critics uh, and the critiques of evolutionary psychiatry. We talk about uh, disorder, how we define disorder, how we should be defining it. Um, we talk about emotions and positive and negative emotions and what that looks like and the right taxonomy there. We talk about mood regulation. We talk about disease model of addiction. Um, and we talk about where we go from from here on how we try to understand uh, a more integrated and multidisciplinary way that's using evolution in all aspects of uh, the uh, social and physical sciences. Um, I really, really enjoyed this conversation with Randy. Um, he's uh, really, really good at communicating science. He's really good at communicating how things are integrated and why we should be uh, interested in evolutionary medicine. Um, I find it uh, super, super, super important. And um, I have been wanting to talk to him for a long time. And I'm glad he came on and, and uh, was really, really helpful in explaining many of these uh, uh, aspects he talks about in his book and his research. Uh, as always, you can find this conversation and all other past and future conversations at convergingdialogues.substack.com. Uh, get over there, subscribe, follow, engage. Uh, also on YouTube as well, same thing. Subscribe, follow, tell your friends, um, and uh, engage over there. And make sure you pick up uh, Randy's book. And so now I bring you Randy Ness. I am here with uh, Randolph uh, Nessie. Randy, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I'm uh, greatly looking forward to this. Look forward to talking with you, Xavier. Yeah, yeah, of course. You've uh, you've uh, done a lot of work, and you've written a, a great book. It's been out for a little bit now, a couple of years. It's called uh, Good Reasons for Bad Feelings, Insights from the Frontier of Evolutionary Psychiatry, which we will talk all about. Um, before we get into it and uh, the book and the uh, evolutionary psychiatry, why don't you just tell listeners your kind of um, audit professional biography, uh, what your background's in, what you do, what you're currently up to, all the good particulars. So, you know, I started off wanting to become a psychiatrist just to help people and get to know them one by one. And before I knew it, I was in the faculty at University of Michigan and really enjoying my profession. It was so satisfying to offer people help of different kinds. I had a peculiar education at Michigan where some of my, my supervisors were psychoanalysts and some were behaviorists and some were neuroscientists and some were pharmacologists, some were existential psychotherapists. It was marvelous. But it left me feeling like, hey, is there any way to pull this all together? Mm -hmm. Mm 
Mm-hmm. Um, and it also made me feel like there's something missing because most of my friends went off into one little area or another. And I wanted to figure out more this question about why everybody uh, is so vulnerable to problems. Mm. And that led me over to the Museum of Natural History at Michigan and talking with biologists there. And they very quickly set me straight and pointed out that I had only studied one half of biology Mm -hmm. uh, in my career. I had studied the half of biology that was about how things work and what the mechanisms are like. And I hadn't learned anything about how natural selection shaped things. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden, I realized that it was about time that this other half of biology got brought not just to psychiatry, but to medicine in general. And that, that led to my work with George Williams, uh, writing a, a grandly titled article, The Dawn of Darwinian Medicine, um, and a subsequent book called Why We Get Sick. And that's inspired a lot of people to ask a whole new set of questions about diseases. You know, most of what we, most research is about why some people get problems and other people don't. Mm-hmm. It's about, it can be brain, can be experience, can be how you think, but it's all about how people are different. Mm-hmm. And the thing that became clear to me after working with George and the biologists was there's a whole nother kind of question that needs to be asked. And that is, who designed this thing? <laughs> you know, why the heck are all of us so vulnerable to depression and anxiety to say nothing of schizophrenia, OCD? Mm-hmm. Um, and that led quickly to work. You know, I, I wrote an article in 1984 about evolutionary psychiatry, which has a lot of the same ideas that are coming into vogue now. Um, but my work then made me realize that we had to understand why diseases exist first in general before we could do mental disorders. Mm-hmm. And that led to about 20 years of developing the field of evolutionary medicine. I mean, often not telling anybody I was a psychiatrist because that makes them skeptical. Mm-hmm. Um, and and now finally it's come full circle and evolutionary psychiatry is, is flourishing. Um, that book puts most of my ideas into one place in an accessible uh, manner that has lots of stories about clinicians along with it. Um, but the Royal College of Psychiatry um, has a marvelous edited volume that just came out from Cambridge last year. Um, and as I may have told you before, uh, my longest article ever, uh, 25 pages, just came out in World Psychiatry this week, mm-hmm. which is the overview of evolutionary psychiatry along with a nice introduction by Jerry Wakefield. And I'm pretty thrilled by that because it's mm-hmm. the first paper of its kind to appear in any major medical journal. Mm-hmm. It's about time we got this all into people's hands. But the emphasis here is, Avery, we're still just getting started. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is a whole brand new, very old and established, but brand new to psychiatry, basic science, that's ready for application. And there's lots of work for everybody to do. Yeah, yeah, no, that's that's great. I mean, it's great to... I think now, yeah, like you said, there's there's been more of a push, uh, I'd say last 20, 30 years really to to be more multidisciplinary, uh, where people are, you know, kind of looking at, you know, their notes and saying, like, well, let me let me pull some of what, what you got from biology and sociology and psychology and psychiatry, less of, you know, well, this is the way we do it and this is our camp. There's been more of, I think, uh interest and in, and in push for that. And so you know, I think evolutionary psychology can fit in there, uh, or excuse me, psychiatry. What is the um, one question I have here is why do you think for so long people didn't incorporate into psychiatry an evolutionary framework? Was it just a kind of like, well, never really considered it, or was it uh, maybe a more intentional agenda of like, no, we don't want to do that kind of stuff? Or what do you think was up with why people? You know, uh, very few psychiatrists have had a chance to get a proper education about mm-hmm. evolutionary biology. 
and some who have, they've just learned about, you know, gene frequencies and population genetics. Mm -hmm. They have not learned about behavioral ecology um, and animal behavior and how natural selection um, changes your view of that. And for me, the insight was that 50 years ago, the whole field of evolutionary behavior was transformed mm -hmm. when they started asking this new class of questions. Previously, they described behavior and mechanisms, psychological and, and brain mechanisms. But then people started asking, yeah, but so why do the blackbirds, why do the black red-winged blackbirds fly back? Why, why do the males fly back first mm -hmm. and grab their positions? And, and why do the females always choose the one with the tallest perch first? Mm -hmm. um, and why, do this, why does the second female blackbird that flies north um, always choose the second tallest perch male? And why does the third one dither quite a while trying to decide whether she wants to be on the third best patch or if she wants to be the number two female on the best patch. Mm. And so, you know, you start recognizing that all organisms are doing things that maximize gene transmission. Mm. And every behavior needs to be understood in that way. Behavior doesn't evolve directly, obviously. Brains vary in little ways because genes vary. And some brains result in behavior that results in having more offspring. Um, and, of course, it's, that depends on the environment. It's not like gene determinism or anything. Mm -hmm. um, but basically, the generalization holds. Natural selection shapes brains. to get organisms to do what maximizes transmission of their genes. And that idea is just now being recognized. You, and yet, it, this happens a lot. I mean, I, I, I'm not in this space as much as other people, obviously. But And yet evolutionary psychology and, and maybe within psychiatry too, it gets a lot of criticism, a lot of pushback. These are just so stories. This is determinism. This is, why do you think there's currently, I mean, there's obviously many people that are really enthralled by this and say, yes, we should incorporate these things, but it does have its series uh, or its crowd, I should say, of critics. Why do you think it gets the criticism maybe unfairly sometimes? I think a lot of it is fair. Um, I think there's a general tendency in humans uh, to attribute functions to almost everything. Mm. I mean, when we use words, we, our words reflect functions. I mean, this is a hammer um, mm. because it's something you pound with. This is a chair because it's something you sit on. We, we label our, everything around our world in terms of functions. And so it seems natural uh, to try to ask something like, oh, well, what's the function of schizophrenia? Uh, what's the function of anorexia? Uh, what's the function of serious depression? And, you know, when, when Gould and Lewinton are holding forth and, and talking about, you know, um, you know, just so stories and like, it was clear to me that they'd set back the study of animal behavior by 10 years because mm -hmm. they didn't say anything about how to do it. They just said, you know, it's bad stuff. Mm -hmm. um, on the other hand, as I've grown older and taught generations of students, I realized that deep in the human mind is this tendency to attribute functions to things that might not have them. And in that long paper that I just published this week, there are many pages talking about, so what is the right object of explanation? It's not diseases. I mean, anybody who says the function of depression is or the function of schizophrenia is, I mean, that's not the right way to go about it. The right way to go about it is to say, um, why did natural selection shape a capacity for mood at all? Mm -hmm. Why did it shape a capacity for anxiety? And how did it shape the mechanisms that regulate mm -hmm. mood and anxiety? And then you have the missing foundation, I and mean, the rest of medicine does this automatically, right? We know what the kidneys are for. We know what cough is for. We know what right. runny noses are for. They're all useful. Right. Um, but doctors don't assume that, you know, the runny nose is the, actually, the runny nose is useful. 
because it clears viruses out of, out of your nose. That that's a protective defense. Right. Um, but when your kidneys fail, uh, that's no good. Um, but the point is that medicine routinely uses functional thinking as a foundation for understanding pathology. Mm. And we're just ready to start doing that in psychiatry. Yes, yeah, that's a really good point. I'm sure we'll we'll definitely come back to to some of that about the adaptive aspects of things. So I'm curious. You talk obviously about it in the book. So how for you from from this framework um, of evolutionary psychiatry? How do you see uh, disorder and diagnosis? And you know, obviously, we have the Diagnostic Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, fifth edition. They just came up with a text revision to the fifth edition, um, you know, which is basically the Bible and things like that. And my sense and my impression is, is that you're, you're not too, uh, you know, uh, fond of disorders or labels necessarily. And, and I, I'm not either. I, I think I was trained by, you know, analysts. So <laughs> we don't really think of people in terms of disorders and labels. Right. They have a function. I think they're important. They have some utility for sure, but um, in, in this context, within this framework that that you're describing, how do you understand a disorder or a diagnosis, and and what's a what's a maybe more well-rounded picture of what that looks like? So it's complicated. <laughs> That's going to be the right answer yeah, here. Right. <laughs> um, back when I was in my residency training, the DSM was just coming in with its you know Chinese menu style diagnosis. And that was a huge advance from just making up things, which is what we did before. Mm -hmm. um, and we were all quite confident. Um, and the people who wrote the DSM-3 were confident that these were temporary placeholder categories, and we were going to find the brain mechanisms that were awry, and that would lead to better diagnoses. Mm -hmm. So here we are, you know, 30-some, 40 years later, mm -hmm. and it hasn't worked. And some people say, oh, you're against neuroscience. Absolutely not. Um, we all have members of our family and others who you know, have serious disorders, and we need to see what we can figure out about why the, the certain genes cause certain people to be really vulnerable. It's essential. On the other hand, we need to pause and say, by the way, what we're doing so far hasn't worked. Mm -hmm. We have never found any specific brain abnormalities or genetic abnormalities or neurochemistry abnormalities that allow us to diagnose a mental disorder. Um, I'm not against that work at all. Keep on. But I think we will make more progress with an evolutionary framework. So this is a reason I mean, everybody gets mad at the DSM because it doesn't fulfill their expectations. Mm -hmm. They want it to be crisp little different things uh, that correspond to specific causal mechanisms. Um, and they're very disappointed. We're all disappointed. It would be so wonderful. Mm -hmm. And I'm, as I'm sure you're aware, there's, you know, the, the largest epidemiological studies ever are called the comorbidity studies by Ron Kessler and company. It's because everybody's got a little of everything. And now, just in the past five years uh, that we have genome-wide dissociation data, mm -hmm. um, we've discovered that even the genes that cause one disorder cause others. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What can we make of this? I think this is the biggest and most exciting question going right now mm -hmm. in psychiatry. And it means that we've been thinking about these things wrong. We've been thinking about them as specific disorders, as if they're cystic fibrosis, you know, mm -hmm. or, or as if they're heart attacks. And, and they're different from that because they're information processing mechanisms that, that go awry. And now to go sideways again for a minute, Dan Stein and I 
decided that, you know, we knew evolution and we were going to show how evolution could fix up the diagnostic system. Mm -hmm. uh, he's a wonderfully accomplished uh, psychiatrist in South Africa. So we worked for a year together and finally wrote an article uh, about, you know, evolutionary biology and DSM and diagnosis. And we were very surprised at our conclusion. We thought we'd come up with something better or trash it. And we concluded that actually the DSM categories are pretty useful for describing what you see in the clinic. You got to talk to other people about what this patient has, and they describe it pretty well. And so our, our conclusion from that work is that really people's distrust of the DSM is because it doesn't have a way to validate the diagnoses. You know, people argue a lot about how much depression you, can you have when it, until it's normal or abnormal. But, but you can't answer that question unless you know you know, why mood exists and how it's normally regulated and how it's useful. Mm -hmm. So that, that's a missing foundation. Jerry Wakefield, in his editorial introducing my article for the World Psychiatry Journal at June 2023 issue, I mean, he's, got, he's the guy who's done more about this than anybody else. If you haven't had him on a podcast, mm -hmm. he's, he's fabulous. Mm -hmm. uh, he, he's the guy who talked about harmful dysfunction. Mm -hmm, as a mm -hmm. way of distinguishing diseases from other things. Mm -hmm. And it's a fundamentally an evolutionary view. Uh, it has to not be functioning right uh, for it to be a, a disorder. So where, where this comes brings us to is the mystery that we're all facing now, mm -hmm. that these disorders all overlap with one another, and they have multiple causes, and any simplistic version is not going to work. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I agree. You know, it's it's interesting when, you know, when I was... Uh, in in my training programs, and we learned, you know, you know, practically had to memorize the DSM and you know all the etiology and epidemiology studies and all that stuff. All the things about diagnosis, super important. But um, as I've done more reading and more research and talking with good folks, um, I've I've had this kind of uh, turning point with diagnosis of, you know, the, the, this is complicated. Right? This is really complicated. It's not as easy as you think. Uh, I'll come to it in a minute, but this this idea of uh, symptomatology and how that can look, you know, one or two symptoms could be in a variety of disorders. It's not a kind of one-to-one, -one. And, and many people get this kind of confused. And I mean, rightfully so, it is, it is you know, kind of difficult in some ways. Um, so I'll come to that in a minute. But first, I guess the question here is, how or, or why did natural selection shape traits that make us, I guess, vulnerable to disease? Um, how how is how are our minds kind of vulnerable there? In the book, you talk about mismatch and infection and constraints and trade offs, all these things. So, could you kind of talk about how, um, kind of like you said earlier, disease is not the best framework? How do we understand what natural selection is doing that are making us vulnerable to some of these things? You're asking the right questions, Xavier, and it's one that I, I literally think about this every single day I have for about 20 years now, <laughs> about what are good categories for understanding why natural selection leaves bodies vulnerable. Mm -hmm. And what I was taught in medical school is, you know what, there's mutations, and natural selection takes quite a while to get rid of them. And that's a, a view of the body that I call tacit creationism, mm -hmm. because it's essentially looking at the body as if somebody designed it. And as if there are specific glitches and specific parts that can account for each disease, but that not that doesn't really do the job. Um, so I think there are five or six categories. We'll start with the simplest one: natural selection can't do a lot of things. It can't start fresh. Uh, so uh, skies, for instance, we have a 
urethra going through the prostate gland, and it's really a lousy place because it's going to get squeezed, and too bad. Natural selection can't reroute it. Yeah. Uh, likewise, the path of the recurrent laryngeal nerve goes down here, around the piece next to the order, and back up. Um, ridiculous. Um, but natural selection can't start fresh. It can't avoid a genetic drift. So there can be genes, for instance, we all can't get rid of uric acid and we get gout and we can't make our vitamin C. Um, that's probably because of genetic drift. Natural selection just can't do it. And then there's selfish genetic elements that gets too complicated. But point number one is, hey, there's a lot of things that natural selection can't do. The second big category is that when natural selection can't eliminate all mutations and genetic developmental variations that make some individuals different. I mean, we all have deleterious genes. We all have you know, little bits of our development of our brain and the rest of our body that didn't go quite right. And natural selection can't make it perfect. So we're all, a lot of individual differences are accounted for by that. The third category is mismatch. And this is a dramatically important one, but not the only one for evolutionary psychiatry. I mean, some problems weren't a big problem uh, in the way back. Uh, drug addiction in particular, yeah, people have always used drugs when they get them, but they couldn't get them and they didn't have them pure and they couldn't administer them with needles. So addiction, you know, that's a new problem for humans. And, you know, the learning mechanisms are run on chemicals. And if chemicals can get in there directly, they can hijack that mechanism. And addiction in broad perspective is really as simple as that. Likewise, for eating disorders, um, they're really not much of a problem when you're striving to get every calorie you can instead of trying to lose weight. And we can talk more about that. It's a great example of evolutionary psychiatry being useful. Hmm. Um, another one is infection because pathogens evolve faster than we do. That's very relevant for obsessive compulsive disorders. Uh, so we could talk about that if you want. It's a specialized area. But finally, and possibly the biggest one, is that natural selection does not shape us or any organism for health or longevity or happiness. It shapes all organisms to maximize gene transmission. And this means that we do all kinds of wild and crazy things about sex. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and, sure. you know, you and your, your clinical work, I'm sure, see the same thing I do. What proportion of problems people bring in have to do something to do with sex or reproduction? Is at least half. More. Uh, I would say more, but but yes. <laughs> yeah. I mean it's just and, and that's because you know the systems are designed not for our benefit. Right. right? They're designed to get us to do things, uh, even that we know better we shouldn't be doing sometimes, uh, to maximize gene transmission. And that's very hard hard to cope with. There are a bunch of other trade-offs as well. Um, just like race cars are are maximized for speed at the expense of robustness. Um, I think many aspects of the body and even the mind are maximized for performance at the expense of robustness. Other trade-offs are in there. But those are the main categories. Mm -hmm. I mean, things that can natural selection just can't do, uh, things that make individuals vary because natural selection couldn't get manufacturing and genes perfectly right all the time, mismatch and infection and trade-offs, especially the big trade-off of us all being shaped to maximize gene transmission at the expense of health. Mm. Yeah, no, it's 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 very instructive. Um, so let's let's talk about real quick just the symptoms not being a a disorder diagnosis. So the, the here's here's how I typically explain it to to folks. You could have uh, ten people in a room come in, and they all carry a diagnosis of major depressive disorder, right? 
And of course, there's, you know, subtypes that mild, moderate, severe, you know, most recent, but we'll just leave that on the off the table for a minute. Let's say they all have clinical depression, right? Some type of clinical depression. Knowing a disorder is or and or diagnosis is not going to tell you what the presentation of each individual person is going to be of those 10 people there. It will tell you some things for sure. Um, you know, you need five of nine major symptoms, you know, for one of the criteria. But when you look at those, you know, I tell this to folks all the time. People will say, people do this with a lot of things. They'll do this with uh, autism, unfortunately. They do it with ADHD. They'll find the one major symptom that's pretty prevalent or pretty popular. This person doesn't have good social skills. They don't make good eye contact, whatever. Okay, they must be somewhere in the spectrum. It could just be socially awkward. Right. I think a lot of people use that too colloquially uh, or this person can't focus and, you know, well, they must be ADHD. And I've told people that uh, <laughs> any types of uh, distractibility is seen in depression. It's seen in anxiety. It's seen in ADHD. It's seen in like that one symptom is seen in a bunch of different disorders. And then you have within each disorder. So, again, back to my first point, you could have 10 people that have depression. But there's, it's just going to look different. Or it's going to be, uh, you know, going to present differently. And not everyone's going to have the same symptoms, but you can still have the same disorder. I think the, um, I think the sexy term for this is a, a polythetic criteria. I think this is right. <laughs> so I guess how do you usually, you know, understand this or explain this to folks about symptoms aren't a diagnosis and they can be in other things, and not all symptoms per se are going to be impairing. Um, how do you kind of usually describe this? I mean, the first big point is to recognize that bad feelings, and this is a major theme of the book, exist for good reasons. And the awful feeling part of it is only part of it, but it's a useful part, sadly, because it gets us to stop doing things that are bad for us and, and bad for our genes. Anxiety is easy for people to understand. Mm -hmm. Hey, it gets you out of dangerous situations and helps you avoid them in the future. Depression is much more hard to understand because it seems useless. Um, but the way, the way I talk about it with people is by helping them to understand that cough is useful. Mm -hmm. If you have surgery and don't cough, you'll probably die of pneumonia. Yeah. Um, fever is useful. Nausea is useful. Vomiting is useful. Pain is useful. And in fact, you'd think it would be lovely to have a life without pain, except people who are born with no capacity for pain are usually dead mm -hmm. by the time they're age 35 or so. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so and there's cough you yeah. say the word cough and it kind of comes so comes there, to mind there, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> but it, but it's but i think it, it helps patients a lot so, oh wait a second so these feelings i'm having are un unpleasant for the same reason that pain is unpleasant i mean for the same reason that cough and nausea and diarrhea are all unpleasant is it helps us to avoid situations that are, are not good for us but then we come to this bigger question about how these things are regulated. Mm. And, and you're asking a deeper question about how the many different aspects of a syndrome are related to each other. Two of my students have done really the world's best work on this. I think Matthew Keller is a geneticist who worked very boldly on whether um, all the symptoms of depression uh, come from the same source. And he looked at whether social losses cause different symptoms of depression than something like a job loss. Mm. And my goodness, he found dramatic evidence that indeed that's the case. 
Mm. Depression, depression isn't just one syndrome that goes off because of a certain spot in the brain mm-hmm. uh, any more than the symptoms of a cold mm-hmm. are all the same all the time. Mm-hmm. I mean, you get runny nose if there's virus in your nose and you get uh, bronchitis if it's here and you get a cough if it's lower down. And then there's fatigue and watering eyes and all the rest. I mean, your body adjusts the symptoms to the nature of the situation. And it does that for depression as well. The other person whose work your listeners would like is Eiko Fried. And he's really pioneered network analysis of depression symptoms, showing that um, the ones that are chosen for the DSM are not actually more central than other symptoms mm-hmm. and are randomly chosen. And furthermore, you can get a diagnosis of depression by several thousand different combinations of symptoms. And you can even get two people with depression who have no symptoms in common. So this wish to simplify everything and create categories that's so deep in human psyche um, really comes into play here. And you you can't fight it completely. People really want a word Mm -hmm. uh, for the syndrome. And it helps to talk about depression instead of just talking vaguely about Mm -hmm. different symptoms separately. But on the other hand, they're they're not all the same thing that come from one source. It's not one disease with one one trigger. Yeah, I think that last point is super essential. This is what I tell my students and in, in, in my clinical work too. Is look, the term can be helpful, but it has it's a means to an end in some ways, and it has limitations. It doesn't tell you how to necessarily do different types of treatment, whether that's pharmacological or therapeutic. It doesn't tell you uh, how to live your life per se. It doesn't, it doesn't really tell you any of those things. Um, and there, it does have limits. Um, it's, uh, I see disorders in many ways as a type of shorthand to say, well, instead of listing out all the symptoms of how they present, we just call it this. And I, I think it at least does that. It might do other things. And, and to be fair, I don't, I mean, you're not against diagnosis. I'm not against it either, but I think it's, I think sometimes people over correct for it. They, they, they fixate too much on that as if that's going to be this like, okay, now I have this people go thing. to an expert like you or me and they want an answer. Yes. They, they, and, they want that. Yeah. And they, they, they want to know what it is. Mm-hmm. And we eventually, even after we say, well, actually it could be, eventually we say, you know what, you have major depression. Mm-hmm. They say, Oh, mm-hmm. and, and I think that changes people's views of themselves. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. and we, we, we talk about trying to avoid stigma. Right. But as soon as you tell somebody that they have a disorder, they start thinking of themselves as this as a disordered person. Mm-hmm. Yep. And I find it so helpful to people to help them realize that anxiety and depression have advantages as well as disadvantages. The patients have too much of it. Mm-hmm. And then I start talking to them about patients who have hypophobia. Mm-hmm. Hypophobia is people who don't have enough anxiety. And it's a fatal disorder mm-hmm. because you fall backwards into the Grand Canyon or you crash your car while drunk at night. Mm-hmm. Um, and likewise, there are people with no depression, people who have no sadness or no depression, and those people feel pretty good and keep going, um, but they keep pursuing things that they're not making any progress on. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. Uh, these are people who spend 50 years trying to become a great poet while driving a taxi and giving up everything else in, in life. Mm-hmm. And it's so hard to give up things. And now we're coming to some of the quandaries that we all face with in our own lives and with patients about so why on earth does low mood exist and the simple answer is that there are times when it's good to put in a lot of effort and take a lot of risks and there are times when you're just wasting your effort and getting yourself in trouble Mm -hmm. by continuing to pursue things sometimes uh, you know 
less sophisticated interviewers ask me on the radios. So, Dr. Nessie, you think that people, if they're not doing well at something, should just give up? <laughs> no. Um, but And this is where real clinical skills come in, I think, Xavier. Um, it's never, if somebody is pursuing an unreachable goal, such as trying to get somebody to marry them who won't, or trying to get into a certain school or trying to break into big time rock and roll, I mean, they have good reasons for doing what they're doing and good reasons for not giving up. Mm -hmm. And it's not so simple as saying, Hey, give it up, brother. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. it's just never so simple. And, and, but it's, that's the key trying to understand what a person's trying to do and how it's going and why they're trying to do it and why they have obstacles. And that's the grist or deep discussions between a sensitive therapist and a patient to try to help people decide you know, what decisions they do want to make about where they put their life's energy. Mm-hmm. No, no, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it, again, like I said earlier, I mean, it's less, I tell this to, 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 to clients, it's, you know, the, the label can be good. Uh, it's means to an end, but it's not the work that has to be done. Right. And it, it doesn't necessarily, now I, I'll give a small footnote here. I mean, there are certain types of, there are certain moments I think where, um, it is important and it can be important for for various treatments. I mean, I think getting, you know, getting right, um, you know, maybe a, a major depressive disorder as opposed to, you know, bipolar two, you know, if, if, if you only see the depression and you never see the mania or the hypomania, you know, well, that's, that's going to have some impact. And it is important, I think, to get that right from, you know, again, pharmacological stance, et cetera. So, I mean, there's definitely utility for some of this stuff. I mean, it, especially with, you know, uh, medications, there can be certain side effects for some than others. And based on what the diagnosis is, I mean, there's, there is utility. So I don't want to be too, you know, um, cavalier about it, but I, I think on a general basis for a lot of people, it's not an identity thing. It's not a. It's not a thing. A label of okay, this. I mean, it can provide some comfort, but really, the last thing you said is what where where I I see it is okay. So now we can look at all of the work about where how this functions in your life, and it's not as a, a aspect of yes, there are moments where this can be deeply difficult, but there is some adaptive elements to this as well. Uh, when you were talking, I thought of the. Uh, the film uh, Inside Out. I don't know if you've seen it. It's a Pixar Disney film. And, you know, I mean, it's, you know, it's an animated film of sorts. You know, all films are going to have limitations. But I thought it was actually pretty wonderful how the whole story kind of revolves around the utility of sadness. That we don't just walk around without being sad. Like, there is a use for that. Um, and I, I thought that was, you know, if you're talking about like pop culture and things like that. I think that's important to to have, right? I think it's important to understand that, hey, all of my emotions have uh, utility. So, which brings me to my next question. Uh, in your book, and I was wasn't I wasn't too surprised based on how the book was reading, but I was really happy that you kind of discussed it. Um, I had an old supervisor that told me, ah, you know, the whole positive negative emotions thing. Not really. That's a pretty terrible binary. Um, I think. It's still kind of used in the literature. It's definitely used in pop culture. I understand what people mean by it. But I think it kind of gives a type of valence to these are the bad emotions and these are the good emotions. And all emotions have a potential uh, adaptivity for us to survive, right? How do, How is it adaptive for us? So how do you kind of look at emotions? And you can distinguish that from feelings and affect. And this idea of how they can be adaptive and, and work for us, whether that's shame and embarrassment or whether that's, you know, joy and happiness and pride of, of a good sort. How do you kind of understand that world? 
We start by asking the evolutionary question about why emotions in general exist and the sub-question about why most of them are positive or negative. And it turns out in an evolutionary view, there's a very simple answer, that emotions are special modes of operation um, that set an organism to cope with a certain kind of situation that's recurred over evolutionary time. So you see some big wild animal, you know, about to pounce on you. You know, a panic attack is an emotion that goes off, and it's a good thing uh, if it goes off at the right time. It's a bad thing if it goes off at the wrong time. Right. That's called panic disorder. Um, but emotions, you know, wh why good and why positive and negative ones? Let's distinguish good and bad emotions from positive and negative ones. Because mm -hmm. a lot of people, I mean, I'm all in favor of positive psychology helping us to bring more positive emotions into our lives. Sure. But sometimes it creeps into the idea that positive emotions are good and negative emotions are bad. Mm -hmm. it, it's so easy to see how people can fall into that, sure. that misrepresentation because both kinds of emotions are useful. Mm -hmm. um, again, sometimes for our genes, not us, but, but they're useful. Mm -hmm. And you know, the fact that we pursue trying to feel positive emotions instead of negative ones is as natural as could be and a good thing too. Right. Now we come back to the question you asked, Savior. Why some positive and others negative in terms of pleasurable versus unpleasurable? And that's because there are two kinds of situations that demand a special mode of operation. One is opportunities to get something, do something, or, 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 or the like. Those are positive. Hmm. Um, the negative situations, however, are equally common um, where there's a threat of loss or experiencing a loss. And this is what organisms do. They try to get resources and they try to avoid losing those resources. And you only need emotions uh, for situations that are either opportunities or threats. And that's why we have two different kinds of emotions globally. Yeah, I think I think it's important for, for people to really understand that, which brings me to two, two sub-questions, I guess, connected to this. So you have uh, two, you have a principle and a metaphor in the book. And so you have the smoke detector principle, which I think is when you're discussing anxiety, which, you know, you can, you can kind of share here. And then uh, separate to that is the thermostat metaphor for, for bipolar, which I, I was interested in this because I, we've had a bunch of theories about this. You know, we have had the Kenling theory, we've had second messenger theory, so on and so forth. And so this is, seems the thermostat metaphor is like the new iteration how do you think will, this will hold or maybe there's some inadequacies with it and what's the kind of next thing that we'll see for that? So maybe just talk, I guess, about those two, the, the smoke detector principle and the, and the thermostat metaphor. Yeah. I mean, first of all, I, I tried to figure out how to organize the book about depression and decided two chapters were needed. One about normal low mood, I call it, and mm -hmm. how that's useful. And another one about when the moodostat fails. Because there are a lot of people who have the mood regulation mechanism just not working right. And they really do have a disorder, a brain disorder that makes things not work properly. And we need to figure out why natural selection left that system vulnerable to failure. Most of my career was spent helping to develop the anxiety disorders clinic at the University of Michigan. And I literally saw thousands of patients with panic disorder. And eventually it dawned on me that you know, this was a useful response going off when it shouldn't. It was a false alarm. And why the heck uh, didn't natural selection shape a better regulation mechanism? Mm -hmm. And then I started doing the math, thanks to reading behavioral ecology, and asking myself, well, uh, what's the cost of a false alarm? And it's maybe 100 calories in 10 minutes. Mm. Uh, what's the cost of not having a panic attack if, in fact, there's a wild animal near you? 
Death. The answer might be death. <laughs> um, so if we do the ratio of you know 100 calories to say 100,000 calories, mm -hmm. uh, that's a thousand to one, and that means that you should flee. This system should be set to get you to flee if there's even a one in a thousand chance that the lion is present, mm. and that means that lots and lots of the panic attacks you experience will be false alarms that come from a perfectly normal system. And I'm going to emphasize this. I'm going to the American Psychiatric Association to talk about these kinds of things later this week. Um, and I'm going to emphasize this point. It, and it seems like if you have useless bad feelings, there must be something wrong in the brain's mechanism, right? Mm -hmm. It seems so obvious. But once you take an evolutionary view about how those control mechanisms are shaped, you realize that normal mechanisms give rise to a lot of useless, bad emotions. The first and most important is the smoke detector principle, because we all put up with smoke detectors going off when we make toast, as we want to make absolutely sure that it goes up when there's a fire. But another explanation is that these mechanisms were shaped for ancestral environments in small groups of 30 and not bureaucracies, and not trying to get degrees, not dealing with cops and, and accountants. Um, so you know we're in a very different environment. A third is that the mechanisms were shaped to maximize gene transmission, not our welfare. That's a very big one. Uh, and then finally, and most interestingly, a lot of these mechanisms have a built-in self-adjusting mechanism to adjust the sensitivity depending on the situation. Hmm. I mean, how, easy, how, how much of rustling in the grass should cause you to flee when you're at a water hole because it might be a lion? Well, it depends on how many lions there are around. If you go out three nights in a row, you have to run home because there's a lion every single night. It's good for that mechanism to become more sensitive mm. and go off more easily. Mm. And guess what? This is a perfect setup to make the system intrinsically vulnerable to runaway positive feedback, a vicious cycle that spirals one or two panic attacks into really bad panic disorder. Same thing, I think, for depression. Mm. Uh, there's been a lot of work on what's called kindling. Kindling is the idea that every episode of depression increases your risk of future depression. Um, it's based on an analogy with inducing seizures in, in rats and experimental models. But if, in fact, if people in certain circumstances strive in ways and nothing's working repeatedly, then sadly, it makes sense for them to assess that as the world doesn't offer me much opportunities and striving isn't going to get me things except getting in trouble. And so it really warps your view of life. And that's how cognitive behavior therapy can be so helpful, mm -hmm. is because that system is wired to in, be vulnerable to a positive feedback loop, where a failure causes you to feel bad about yourself and causes you to not to do stuff, and then you fail more. Uh, and it gets into the kind of loop we see in the clinic. Mm. Yeah, no, no, that's that's great. I mean, I think that that's... I mean. Uh, these things seem, um, I don't want to say, they're not obvious, but it, it seems more well-rounded, at least in my mind of like, yes, it's it's not, because I, I think a lot of times people get to this place where it's like, well, we, we just don't know, or it's not enough. And I think, obviously, there's still things we don't know, and we're still figuring out, of course, but I think, you know, having our, our, our minds and our, and our brains and some of the mental issues that can be uh, connected to that in connection with the rest of our body, uh, well, why not look at how evolution and biology connects with it? Why would we have these things separate from that or not inclusive in that? That that just makes kind of rational sense to do. 
Well, let's cycle back to where we started. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, most research and most thinking about these disorders is what caused it for this person. Mm-hmm. And we're asking an entirely different question. Mm-hmm. We're asking, why do we all have the capacity for these bad feelings? Mm-hmm. And why are the regulation mechanisms so vulnerable mm-hmm. to setting off false alarms and to breaking um, also? Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. So uh, a few things here, uh, just uh, kind of more specifics. Uh, I want to ask at least two, two more uh, specific things here is, let me ask you about uh, addiction. So this is something I'm really, I really want to get your your insight on. So the the disease model of addiction is like huge, right? It's almost it's almost like if you don't agree with that, then you're going to be you know put off on uh, off the off the island, right? You have to. That's the kind of it's almost it feels almost religious, you know. Anytime and for me personally, I've never truly been convinced of it. I think there's some utility for it. I think maybe there's variants, but I don't think that's the only thing. What do you, what do you think? Where do addictions come into play, and how do you view the disease model? And if it's not the disease model, uh, what's a better uh, framework or conceptualization of of addiction? So you know, learning is a wonderful thing, um, and the learning mechanisms in our brain are run by chemicals, and there's pleasure associated with learning things that are positive and getting rewards. That. It's important that learning get us to do things over again that work out well for us. But the problem is that those chemicals can be influenced by chemicals that come from outside. Mm-hmm. Uh, one powerful one is nicotine. People have been using it for a long time and getting addicted. Um, and alcohol has an equally long history. It even seems to some anthropologists that that might be the literal origins of civilization is people trying to grow grains and ferment them so that they could drink alcohol. Um, it, it goes way, way back. Some people have even suggested Robin Dunbar has a new book out. Mm-hmm. Um, and Ted Slingerland also has one out called Drunk, um, arguing that maybe uh, alcohol did things to our social abilities to uh, allow culture to evolve. I'm more skeptical about that, but they're really worth reading mm-hmm. uh, because uh, alcohol really does do fascinating things to our, our social abilities and, mm-hmm. and the like. But in terms of the disease model of addiction, I mean, it's, I mean, I think people say that because they don't want addicts being blamed mm-hmm. and they don't want addicts just being told, hey, stop it. Mm-hmm. Um, which is, you know, what so many people think, including some clinicians. Right. And say, well, why don't you just stop it? Mm-hmm. Just this I increasingly think, Xavier, that you know, we're all wired to believe in free will. And it's a big problem. Because mm-hmm. we believe in, I mean, nobody says, I'm going to start taking heroin and I know I'll probably get addicted. No, nobody believes that. Everybody says, well, I can stop if I want to. Mm-hmm. Even smoking cigarettes, people say, oh, I'll just smoke one pack and, and then you know, I can stop if I want to. And it's fascinating that some people can. Mm-hmm. But a whole lot of people can't. There's big individual variations here. Um, Another aspect of the disease model suggests that maybe these people who are genetically vulnerable, Mm -hmm. and it's influenced a lot by genes, so that maybe those are defective genes. Mm -hmm. And evolutionary psychiatry comes down strongly here and says, no, they're not defective at all. Um, Addiction was not a risk. Um, back, you know, 100,000 years ago or even 10,000 years ago. Mm -hmm. So there's not been selection against those genes that make some people vulnerable. And the research project that I keep wishing people would do very carefully is looking at people who are genetically vulnerable to addiction 
And you can do that now by using polygenic scores mm -hmm. and finding out how they behave differently in everyday life. Mm. And in particular, how they behave differently in foraging tasks. Because mm. that's how we spent our lives up until very recently. We went out looking for food. And I think that people who have genes uh, that make them vulnerable to addiction are likely to forage differently. And they're likely to go back to the same place over and over again more. Uh, I did one paper with Kent Barrage about addiction. It was published in Science. He, of course, is the expert on wanting versus liking. And this is very profound for understanding addiction. He points out that you know the liking part of response to a drug occurs early. I mean, you take a shot of heroin, and it's really great. And for some people, their first shot of alcohol, they're, th oh, what have I been missing all my life? It's, it's really big for them. But then the drug takes over the learning mechanism and gets individuals to do over and over again whatever it did to juice those dopaminergic neurons. And before people know it, the liking part is gone and the wanting part is taken over and they're prisoners. Mm -hmm. And so in that sense, it really is a disease and it's really a brain disease. And if we could do something to reboot the brain back to the point it was before the drug started influencing it, that would be fabulous. Um, but I wish we could just convince everybody that, no, you can't control your behavior as much as you think you can. You really should never try smoking. And you should really be very careful about drinking if there's any history of that in your family. Um, I don't think we're going to convince some people of, to, that, of that, but no, it's interesting. No. Yeah, yeah, it is very interesting. And it's interesting to see, kind of what you're saying, some of the, the other two folks that are also thinking about in terms of alcohol, some of the, the history of it. And it is really, really fascinating to, to, to think about, it, especially since alcohol specifically is, can be highly addictive, um, uh, which is, you know, I think obviously problematic for lots of folks. Um, one other category here, you can just, and just briefly uh, is what do we do with uh, personality disorders? Um, I mean, <laughs> it's just as a, again, a little bit, you know, a long footnote here, as far as I'm uh, aware, the personality disorders uh, category in terms of the 10 that are in the DSM five has not been updated since DSM three. I think that's right. Uh, and DSM three came out in 1980, or well, the update was to the to the DSM four. So since sorry, since 92, 94, it's literally unchanged. And when they made the big change in DSM five, they had um they literally just copy pasted it into from DSM four to DSM five. So it's been at least 30 years. Um, I know they have the alternative kind of you know uh, way of of diagnosing personality disorders, but they've always been kind of a mystery for some people. And I, I don't, um, I don't work with folks that have personality disorders uh, specifically. And I know other people have, but what do you make, I guess, of within a evolutionary psychiatry framework uh, about personality disorders, if at all, is it, is it, is it really a kind of question mark on something? So, so this is an area where um, I haven't tried to understand personality disorders and, and I haven't tried to treat people with personality, mm -hmm. except we all do. Um, but, you know, th that's not been my specialty. I have, however, recently gotten into pretty deeply the evolutionary question about why personality exists. That is, mm -hmm. why does that genetic variation that influences these different types of personality exist? Mm -hmm. And some people in evolutionary psychology have suggested that maybe it's an adaptation. Mm. to help people cope with different kinds of niches mm. or take advantage of different social niches. 
Um, I'm more with Cosmides and Tubi in their original take. Mm -hmm. um, and they suggested that, you know, actually there's kind of a modal personality uh, that maximizes fitness. And and the variations are stochastic variations that come from genes and developmental things and all the rest. This is surprisingly an unanswered question. Mm -hmm. And people are still still debating that. Mm -hmm. um, another idea I've had about this, which fits with a lot of good uh, work, uh, a fellow named CSIH has done very wonderful work on evolution and personality in animals. Mm. And part of the idea there is that once you start adapting in a certain way to social groups, or your environment in general, whatever you whatever you do that works, you do more of. Huh. So you know how many ways are there in, of influencing people? You can try to please them, or you can threaten them. Mm -hmm. And 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 a lot of people get into one of those two modes, and they perfect it. And and if you're going to be a tough guy, you can't all of a sudden go soft and, and sympathetic. It won't you, you won't influence anybody anymore. Mm -hmm. So I think we get kind of trapped in whatever kind of role we start off doing which says a lot about early influences, but the early influences can't be separated very well because your parents have the same genes you do. So it's you know, hard to say. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's still a lot of, a lot of work to be done on, uh, on, on personality disorders. It is interesting. Uh, and then it's interesting kind of theoretically, but it's also interesting clinically as well. So my last question for you is, you know, you, you've, you've written a, a handful of things. You've written a fabulous book that's really accessible for people. I guess what is the the main thing that you want people to really understand about evolutionary psychiatry, um, generally, and and how we can how that can be really helpful for for us. That's a, that's a good way about questions, Xavier. And the biggest thing is what it's not. Mm. You know, it's not a method of treatment, mm. um, and there's nothing alternative about it. Mm. Um, it's just applying a basic science. Uh, to under, better understand, prevent, and treat, you know, mental disorders. And it, we're just at the bare beginning of it. And it's going to take a lot of work by many people over, over many decades to figure out how to bring in this basic science to get the maximum benefit. Uh, another thing that I'd like to emphasize is that a lot of the ideas out there are just not consistent with evolutionary theory. Mm -hmm. uh, people are imagining that disorders can be useful for the group or something. So it's it's a hard it's very few psychologists and psychiatrists have ever had a chance to learn the depths of evolutionary theory. And even if they have, there are controversies there. But I'd like to wrap up by pointing out that you know, sometimes people imagine that an evolutionary view is kind of crude and would view people as animals and put people in categories and say, do this or do that. Um, to my way of view, it should be the exact opposite. Um, I think an evolutionary view encourages us to spend many hours trying to really understand what a person's trying to do in life and how things are going in each of six different areas. I call this the review of social systems. And there's a whole chapter in the book of how to, how to go about understanding individuals as individuals with an evolutionary viewpoint. And that that's where I hope the field will go. It's not so simple as just, you know, how to do it. Um, it requires a deep understanding about, you know, the different kinds of resources that everybody is pursuing and how we pursue them. And we haven't even talked, Xavier, about the amazing miracle that humans are capable of real love and morality. Oh, There's yeah. another chapter in the book about that. Mm -hmm. um, and some people think, oh, it, he's talking about selfish genes, so he thinks we're all selfish. Absolutely not. Selfish genes make for very generous people uh, most of the time. So there are whole worlds here for, for exploring. People interested in the book, 
and just look up my name or evolutionary psychiatry. The book website is goodreasons.info. Uh, that will take them there. There's also evolutionarypsychiatry.org uh, will take you to a page where interested people can sign up to get on a list so they can be informed about new things happening. Yeah, no, that's that's, that's wonderful, uh, Randy. I, I I can't say enough thanks. I've uh, I've enjoyed your book. I've read it twice. Um, I, I I follow a lot of the work you do, and I think your your voice is super important. And um, I just can't say enough thanks for such it's a all wonderful coming conversation. Along. Glad to have your help. Glad to have your help with us, Savior, and all the of best. Of course, to you. of course. Thanks so much. Okay.